All right, what's up, everybody? We've got an episode on the Vietnam War today, specifically around the Battle of Hamburger Hill with someone who hasn't been on yet, but I'm really excited about this, Leon Schwartz. Leon, thanks for being here, man. No problem. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed listening to all your podcasts and your TikTok videos, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, So I've known you since, I guess, about 2006 when I first met you, my brother... My twin brother is a classmate of yours at West Point, and you guys both served in Afghanistan in Kandahar, actually. Different mm-hmm. units, but same area. And uh, I am not in the military, and I'm not prior service, but I've always enjoyed history and studying history from Civil War battlefields around you know, the East Coast to you know, any kind of history, whatever time period. And uh, I was a teacher for about... 10 years. I taught English and history in America and also in South Korea and Vietnam, South Korea for one year and Vietnam for about five years. And in Vietnam, I lived in the North, which there's not as many foreigners. So I lived in Hanoi and uh, I also lived in Nayan province. So I don't speak Vietnamese fluently. I can get by. But, Which is uh, impressive, by the way. Yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty difficult language. But even though I think I can get by, I'll go try to buy something, and I'll think I can say the word perfectly, and then they'll say they have no idea what I'm talking about. But I, I know a little bit more than the average person. We'll just say that. So you're definitely being humble, um, especially when it comes to something that's been a lot of fun in the last few months. Leah and I have spoken a few times, um, kind of prompted by the podcast, but getting into things around Vietnam. And he's just having been there and with an interest in the area, he's got a lot of little tidbits of knowledge that I've never come across. So really excited to get into that. And uh, I, I probably, I'll go ahead and say that, you know, I would never say this to his face, but his brother, Danny, is one of the best people I know, just a really solid dude. Um, and yeah, four years together at West Point. And Leon's one of the only siblings, I think, that we really, I'm trying to think of, I mean, there's a couple but we ended up going to pre not a not pre yeah Preakness. Well, it was Preakness, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Preakness in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, something like that. So yeah, it goes back time. a little ways. Good times. Before we get into, um, so I, I guess what I'll say for listeners is, rather than just some big broad topic on Vietnam, we thought we'd use kind of a a common something that you all could look up and watch and kind of maybe follow along with. And that's the movie Hamburger Hill. So we're going to use that as kind of a timeline to walk through some events around that time of the war. But before we do that, Leon, what, what took you to Vietnam? Cause that's like, you glossed over the fact that you taught in Asia for a while. And that's, <laughs> that's pretty unique. Well, I, I was doing my master's pro- I was in a master's program and teaching here. And I said, enough with this. And, uh, I wanted to go to South Korea because I saw an, I knew about an opportunity there and I loved it, but it just wasn't as authentic as I wanted. They've become almost Americanized or Westernized in many senses, at least the youth has, you know? So then I said, what's the most authentic place still left in Asia? And in my mind, I thought it was Vietnam and I had a general, you know, I really enjoyed the history that I've learned before that about it. So I went there and then Hanoi was a place where um, 
it's a little more authentic than the South because that's actually real Vietnam, I would say. You know, maybe people in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City would take offense to that. But the, you know, it's kind of like the orig original America is the 13 colonies. Original Vietnam is the Red River Delta or Song Hong, which is the river that runs through Hanoi. That's where old Vietnam is. And it's still very traditional and very different than the South. So that kind of took me there and um, I ended up really liking it. And, and a lot of my knowledge actually comes from my wife who is from Vietnam and she is a native and she's from Neon province, which is Ho Chi Minh's home province. So he's, he's loved by all in Vietnam at least in the north. <laughs> Where is that in the country? Okay, so that Vietnam, I'll, Vietnam shaped like an S and they're, in our eyes, we call it North Vietnam and South Vietnam, especially when we talk about the war, but they have three different regions, if not more, but they have the north, which is Hanoi and the uh, mountains to the northwest. And then they have the central part of Vietnam and that's where my wife's part of the, uh, province in Neon is the northern part of the central part of Vietnam. And, uh, and then you have the south, which is uh, Saigon, the Mekong Delta and all that. But, so she's from Neon and that and her grandmother is actually from the same village as Ho Chi Minh. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a lot there. And there's maybe a topic for another day. But I'd like to get into some further back stuff in Vietnam because I think we, we did it again in Afghanistan because we people, maybe it's we Americans, don't remember some things in the past and we tend to make mm -hmm. the same mistakes again. And, you know, I think in Afghanistan, I try my best not to get completely derailed here, but in Afghanistan, we, we thought these were just uh, guys living in caves and they weren't. And when we look, even now, when we look back at Vietnam, I think there's a common perception that these were farmers that the United States was fighting. And I think it, even disregarding the competence with the NBA and the VC at the time, it's looking past the fact that this was, these were some warriors. They'd been fighting for a long, long, long time. A long while back. Uh, absolutely. Something I was going to touch on later, but we can talk about it now. So they have a no, let's, very let's, long history. I'm dragging out. I'm, I'm getting this off topic already. You hold on to that one. We'll get into the, uh, into the movie. Okay. Or is that a good, or is that a good segue? Well, I was just going to speak of their history. You know, they, they, uh, they've been, they were occupied by the Chinese for over a thousand years. And then they finally got their freedom in 1800s. Uh, and then 50 years later, the French come in because that was kind of the colonial period and they came in and took over. So they only had their independence for about 50 years. And then the French came in and pretty much for, you know, lack of a better term, raped the country of its resources and education. The people suffered for a long time. And then, and then the Japanese came in during the Second World War and used them and raped them again for their rice and for their resources for the war material. And then after that, uh, they fought the French, Dien Bien Phu, got them out of there. And then the Americans came in. And I think we threw everything we had at them. So they, uh, they're quite resilient. And uh, we can relate that to Afghanistan. They're, 
they're tough people. And I'll, I'll say one thing before we start talking about the movie. I remember one time I was talking to a veteran there and I said, you know, aren't you guys, are you mad at America, you know, for all that we threw at you and the death and destruction we were part of? And he said, yeah, it hurt, but you know, we've been fighting the Chinese for a thousand years. You guys were, you know, two decades. We knew you'd leave, you know, we, we respect you. It was just war, but you know, we, we've had a long history with the Chinese. So. Yeah, this is a complicated one. Um, I always, you know, I think about military history, there's like World War II, I, I use the term clean, it's neat. You, <laughs> you can follow along and track along and you can kind of see where these different ideas, I mean, you can point to when the Soviet Union started. You can point to when Nazi Germany started. But when you get into Vietnam, it's, there's a lot, a lot there. Um, so diving into the movie, they, they, they spend the first, I don't know, third or so just kind of receiving new troops and doing training around their base. And I was surprised at the amount of interaction they showed with the local population. I don't know how common that was. I think it varied across the country, but they were pretty closely intertwined, it seemed. In a lot of ways, it seemed like there was some trading going on. There was also some, uh, I don't know what you call it, a brothel. Sure, there's a different term for that, but I was surprised. I feel like there's a lot of shows and movies around Vietnam that don't show that side of it, so I was kind of excited to see it. Yes, I noticed that as well, and that's something I wanted to talk about. Uh, I don't know how I think they took a few liberties with the interaction with the population in that sense, but it certainly they hit on some really important points like the girls selling soda, you know, running along the convoys, you know, uh, saying like Pepsi, there's plenty of, if you talk to any veteran, they'll tell you, you know, there's kids trying to sell little products, you know, along the way. So I think that's pretty accurate, but I don't know if they would just, they were in their bases in a certain region and then they would just kind of go to the brothel. It was more, if, this is a movie about the grunt, you know, there's a, there's only one reference to, or there's only one officer in the whole movie. And so it's, it's, it's a grunt movie. And these guys, especially as infantrymen, they weren't going into the cities and the towns too much. They were humping all day. So the chances they did get was during R and R they'd go to the brothels, but it wasn't, you know, stand down from a, from base and just go hang out in the brothels for what I think. Walk into town real quick. And yeah. Yeah, they were in the wire, you know, that they were they were there to fight this, you know, and they that's what it is. But uh, as far as that, there's uh, that brothel scene, they um, they hit on a bunch of terms that are just like, I think, you know, whoever's writing the movie said, OK, we, we want to add in these terms. And some of them, a lot of them come from World War Two. Um, and so let's see, I got Mama son. I'm sure you've heard that. I've heard part. it. I don't know what it means, though. Yeah. Mama-san, Papa-san, those were, you know, like an older woman or just a woman in general, a village woman, you know, instead of just saying the missus or say, hey, Mama-san, that came from World War II, you know. And then uh, they say, boom, boom, that's still used today throughout Asia. And uh, and let's see. And then one they say throughout the movie is number one, you know, that was a ranking system. And that's how the Vietnamese would sell things or promote things to the GIs. They say, oh, number one hotel or number one girl or number one drink. 
everything was number one. That was the best. And then, oh, number 10. Oh, shoot. So they definitely talk about that. Um, a few more quick ones is uh, they say DD Mao. DD means go, go. Like, so that you would uh, you say DD. And uh, <laughs> one interesting little funny tidbit is my uncle through marriage was a platoon leader in Vietnam. And I, I remember when I went over there to, and lived, and I came back, I could speak a little. And I said, hey, do you remember any uh, Vietnamese? And his only thing he remembered is, yeah, DD. That is the only thing he could remember. He added a little mf -er on the end, but. <laughs> and then uh, two more things from that scene that I, some uh, words was Marvin the Arvin. That's what a lot of the uh, guys called the the South Vietnamese troops, ARVN, Army of the Republic of Vietnam. So Marvin Arvin. And the last one she says is when they're kind of sweet talking the, the ladies of the night, they say, uh, yeah, oh, you're looking for PX privileges, you know? And that was kind of, they had this perception that the only reason they, these girls wanted to get with them was just because they wanted to have access to the American goods, the quality stuff and go to the PX, so. I like it. I, um, something that stood out to me in those scenes as well, or I wrote it down during those scenes, but it kind of played out throughout is in this movie, they let the language stay in. So there were a lot of racist terms being thrown around both towards the Vietnamese and towards the other American troops um, mm -hmm. within the American troops, right? Within the ranks. And like, it can be kind of off putting, you know, that's, that's something where, I feel like today things get canceled over that, or if that was on TV, they'd really have to cut a lot out, but I'm glad they kept it in because that's accurate. That's how people talked probably worse than it was in the movie, to be honest. Um, and I think it provides the right mindset. Like that's, that was how the enemy was viewed. That's how the Vietnamese people were viewed by some soldiers um, as less than as uh yeah different in the very least so i noticed that they let the language go and i mean it's an older movie so it makes sense but i'm strangely strangely glad they let that in i think when you whitewash that stuff out you lose some context yeah i noticed that as well they definitely have some slurs towards the vietnamese but you know you gotta if you're at war you gotta that's the enemy you gotta you know you gotta make an enemy and that's through some racial terms and it's generalizing but also remember this is this is 1969 this is you know the height of the civil rights movement and there's a lot of racial tension especially on in the frontline units uh the blacks definitely thought they were being treated unfairly and there's a ton of that in the movie uh, especially with the doc who's who's always kind of angry at at the establishment or the white man but at the end, they kind of come together as a unit and which is nice to see, you know, there's, and there's some people say there's no color in the military, you know, it's an army green or Marine, you know? So I, I thought that was a, a good point. So on that note of kind of respect or disrespect, how we're going to play that. I, there was a scene where I was convinced something else was going to happen where they showed the guy clipping the wire and crawling through the wire and, oh. and he stands up with the RPG. And I thought this is one of those scenes where they're telling a story. It's like different times and that rocket's going to let loose. And I guess it was just an example, but what I thought was interesting and I'm, I'm interested in your, your thought on this Leon, but 
he said, forget VC. These guys are NBA. Give them respect. Oh, absolutely. There, there was a respect for the NBA. I mean, anytime there was a large scale involved, uh, uh, large scale engagement with it, with the NBA, it was bloody affair. It was a very bloody affair. Let's stop for a second and make, uh, define or just a little context NBA versus VC. Okay, VC is Viet Cong, which is a co- uh, term coined by the president of South Vietnam. Uh, and that was a derogatory term for the Northerners, the communist. So Viet Cong, it means Viet, Vietnam communist, Cong being communist. Kind of guerrilla fighters. Yeah. So they generally, they were in the South. I mean, they were in the South and they were kind of, they were, were a structured unit but not a, nah, it's tough to describe. They, they were kind of a underground unit compared to the NVA, which was the North Vietnamese Army or PAVN, PAVN, People's Army Republic of Vietnam. And uh, they, they had uniform, the, the Northern NVA, they had uniforms. It was a legit army, whereas the VC were, Maybe they came from the south or came from the north to the south, or they were southerners that were for the cause of uh, unification or didn't want the Americans there or just kind of wanted to do their own thing. So but the, v, the NVA were battle hardened. They stem from the uh, Viet Minh, which was the fighting force that fought the French under Vo Nguyen Zap. And, uh, and one thing I want to mention is that, you know, they, they mentioned Ho Chi Minh a few times, and at during the what the Vietnamese call the American War or the Vietnam Vietnam War, Ho Chi Minh didn't really have too much of a role. People might be surprised to hear that he was more of a figurehead at that point. He had di- he dies in '69, so a few months after this battle, I think late '69, he was sick, and he and if the Vietnamese government was listening to this, which who knows they might be, they. Uh, they would strongly disagree, but they, Ho Chi Minh wasn't, you know, he was towards his latter days and wasn't a big fan of war at this point. He had spent his whole life fighting and they kind of just said, Hey, you know, respectfully old man, you know, just, just smile and be for us where the real power was with a guy named Le Duc Ta and some other people in the Politburo and the, uh, in the government in North in the, in the communist North. So and these guys up near Ashaw, where this takes place in the Ashaw Valley, that's up near the border. So yeah. it and and near the border with Laos. So they end up seeing more regular army than maybe troops further south. Yeah, absolutely. They're so the, so in Vietnam they call it's Asaw. It's not Ashaw. Yeah, it's a, but but no one would call it that either. They would call it. Uh, Aloy. Aloy is the district where this valley is in. So that I've struggled what, with that pronunciation. That's one of those where every time I say it, I'm like, I feel like that's not right. And I'll <laughs> ask, and but I go down the, the I have the problem of I ask like a veteran, <laughs> an okay. American, and they pronounce it the same way I do, right? So just repeating that cycle. Yeah, I mean, but veterans still, they say, you know, dinky doe, dinky doe. I, I met a guy in town the other day. He's like, oh, yeah, I know. Remember, I wasn't, he was a Chinook uh, engineer. And he, oh, dinky doe. And I'm like, well, I don't, I've heard that. And then I asked my wife, you know, what does that mean? Because they said in the movie as well, and it's dien kai do, which means like 
DN's crazy. Kaido is like big head or headache. So it's like, oh, you're a crazy head. But that was like what the villagers might have said to the to the troops coming in. Oh, DN Kaido, Dinkido, Dinkido, kind of transforms. And these guys, you know, this is 1969. They come over there and they just hear Dien Kaido, and that's kind of how it spreads. But so one thing I thought was interesting, you know, they're riding around in the trucks for the new replacements, and this is just a, a little weird military history thing that I find um, interesting when we get into some of this stuff. When we hear the Asaw, Asaw, Asaw. Well, it's I would call it Asaw. Asaw. They call it because you know what. That's what they call it. Therefore, it is that. There we go. So w- when I hear that, and especially coming from the 101st, we had Ashaw Boulevard on post, oh, yeah. right? It's a big part of that unit's history. It's a big part of the United States history in Vietnam. It's a deadly, deadly area. But these troops are arriving in country, and somebody says, I don't, I don't know if I wrote it down here, but he said, what's the Ashaw? <laughs> and the other guys looked at him like, are you kidding me? How do you not know what the Ashaw is? But it, it wasn't it just wasn't that well known, even despite the fighting, um, 18 year olds getting drafted or volunteering, didn't know all of these little names on the map in Vietnam and what they would turn into, you know, what they would become. No, absolutely. I mean, you guys talk about this in the band of brothers stuff, but these, these privates, these new recruits, they have, they have no idea. They don't even know what mission they're going on. You just get in the truck and go get out there and fight. And so they have no idea. Um, that's uh, and even if you ask a Vietnamese person, hey, do you know Aloy or Aishaw or Aishaw or however you say it, they don't know about this. You know, this is that's a that's not a Vietnamese word. That's a that's an ethnic minority, or in Vietnam they say Zantok, which means it's like the natives. You know, the mountain people, the, or what we would call the mountaineers, the French term for mm-hmm. the mountaineer. That's a that's a word for that's one of their words. There's 58 different tribes in Vietnam. And a, a clear distinction that I want to make in, at this time, especially at this time, in Vietnam, the Viet people, which are called King, K-I-N-H, King people, they are, they are farmers, coastal plain farmers and fishermen. And everything else in the whole country that's not on the coast is occupied by the Montagnards or the Zantok people, the, tribe, hill, the hill tribes, like Hmong, Muong, Zhao. So all these, 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 uh, and, that, and they're right on the border of Laos. There's no, no one knows where the border between Laos and Vietnam is. You know, this is, this is a different time. You know, it's not like they're sitting there with GPS. Oh, we can't go here. This is, that was all free game at that time. So, and that was all Montagnard land. So a lot of these names and the streams since have been renamed since the uh, communists have taken over. But that was all, you know, Zuntalk land, ethnic minority land. It's crazy looking at a map, even. I mean, those, those, I'm sure there's some boundaries that are tied to rivers and, and um, terrain, but it seems like much of that border between Vietnam and Laos was somebody just scribbled on a map. Mm-hmm. That's what it looks like. I, it's like hard to, it, it well, goes over mountains and then across a valley instead of down a valley. Like I can't understand the border at all. Well, I think, I don't think, I, I know geography plays such a huge role in military history. I mean, it is some of the most important aspects of military history. And even today, when you travel out there, there's one road into the, you know, to that area. 
the valley was so important. The Aishal Valley was so important because that's right up north in the next province north is the top northwest corner of South Vietnam. So the, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which would come down through North Vietnam and then they break, branch out through different valley passes, because you can't just go anywhere. You have to follow the, the valley passes. That's the only way to get through this rough you know, jungle terrain. They would come through there and then there's different entrance points. Like, and that's why a year earlier, one of the biggest battles of the war in Kaesan, where the Marines fought, you know, a seven, eight month battle there. Uh, that was a huge staging point for the coastal area of Hue. Yeah, and then, and that the city that is tied directly with the Aishaw Valley is Hue. Hue was the imperial capital of uh, Vietnam on the 1800s onward. Interesting. They so getting into the Ho Chi Minh Trail a little bit. That's the trail that moves through uh, Laos outside. So because the United States had such a heavy troop presence in South Vietnam, it wasn't always the easiest to uh, move supplies or personnel through South Vietnam for the enemy. So they would go outside the country, move into Laos, where the United States wasn't supposed to be. Um, at times, wasn't. At other times, was pretty active. Um, it took a while for all that to come out public, I think, but it was one of those weird things. Another comparison with Iraq, with, uh, Afghanistan where the enemy kind of operates in Pakistan and then steps across the border and then goes back to safe Haven. So it's one of those complicated pieces in history, but yeah. So, so a Shaw, the special forces camp that was there earlier, a lot of fighting in 67, 68, Hamburger Hill happens in 1969, the Battle of Hamburger Hill. Um, some, it's an awful name. Didn't you know? It, it earned that name, unfortunately. Um, but that's not. It's not like they set off for Operation Hamburger Hill. That came about after the fact. But it's the year after. I mean, this is. I think it's safe to still call this peak Vietnam War. Oh, absolutely. It's 68, 69, 69. This was kind of the peak of ground operations in Vietnam. So after, so this is coming a year after the Tet Offensive, which I, I'm guessing most people listening to this are somewhat familiar with that. Uh, that's when the, the North launched a, an offensive against the, uh, the Americans on the Lunar New Year, Tet, and uh, wreaked a lot of havoc, but then the Americans came back and just went to town and really destroyed the North, the VC almost wiped them out and hit the NVA hard, but the NVA kind of retreated as they usually do. They'll fight hard and then they'll retreat because they didn't have the air power. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have the supply routes, you know, just the endless money. So they did what they had to do. And then a year later, uh, public support really started to dwindle in America. And that was a, very that was the strategy of the NBA. They knew the public would turn against the killing, and that was that was one of the reasons Hamburger Hill was so important because they wanted to inflict the most amount of death possible on the Americans because they knew the Americans didn't have the heart for this. They, you know, not the American troops, but the American public didn't want to see their their national treasure go up and die in these hills. You know, what what, would, what did it mean to them? It meant a lot more to the 
to the Vietnamese than it did to the American public to have their sons and daughters die in Vietnam. That's my opinion, but. I think that's, I think that's pretty accurate, man. Um, there's a, a, a phrase that comes up often in the Vietnam War, uh, body count. And I'll give the loose 30 second rundown here, but the, the general gist being that say there were 1 million enemy fighters in Vietnam, the U.S. was had much more killing power than Vietnam did. And the thought being, if, if you could kill enough of them, uh, they wouldn't be able to put up a resistance. So there's a tipping point in there. Is the tipping point 250,000 or is it 750,000? Maybe it's all, maybe it's a million. We don't know, but it, it's one of those strategies that we have the luxury now to look back and say, that didn't work and probably never would have worked. But on paper, you can kind of see how they got there. Mm-hmm. The enemy has a set number of troops. If we kill enough of them, remove them from the battlefield, they can't fight anymore. And that's kind of what leads the U.S. into some of these confusing battles like Hamburger Hill. Yeah, that, that was uh, – so it, after Tet – so between Tet and Hamburger Hill, six, 68 and 69, the, the MACV, Military Assistance, um, Military Assistance Command Vietnam, yep. uh, they, they changed their leadership from Westmoreland, William Westmoreland, or known as Westy, I guess, if you're a, if you're a colleague of him, and uh, to Creighton Abrams, who were classmates uh, at West Point. And they had a change in strategy from like search and destroy and kill the enemy to uh, make it to, to keep the population safe. And that one of the big turning points was hamburger Hill in this, because they said, you know, we're not going to keep dying for this. You know, the public is, has had enough. Uh, we, the political part of America, Nixon said, you know, we can't be having our sons and daughters or sons die like this anymore. So change that up well let's get into the actual fight do you think that's worth oh absolutely at at this point we're definitely going to do it so um you know what's going to happen a place that's called hamburger hill it's a well-defended area ends up being probably better defended than anticipated but the intelligence at the time suggested there was going to be at least a sizable enemy presence and remember that the goal is to kill as many enemy as possible. There's a quote after the fact from one of the commanding generals saying that's where the enemy was. So we went there. Mm-hmm. And it's this very simple view that's uh, understandable. Again, um, find the enemy and kill them from, uh, was it? We were soldiers, the very clear instructions, right? So the 101st is tasked with clearing this hill. Uh, what ends up being known as Hamburger Hill, but I believe at the time it's uh, given a hill number. Let me make sure I get this right. Um, hill 937. Yep. Just a random number on a map. Usually those numbers have to do with the elevation of the hill, but the 101st is going to be tasked with with clearing much of that. There's a couple other units involved as well, but what's followed along in uh, in the movie is is part of the 101st. And from start to finish, it's just nasty. Yeah, they, they get inserted uh, by helicopter, but that's after, so I have a book here that's given some uh, stats that the Air Force flew 272 sorties 
dropping more than a million pounds of bombs, including 152,000 pounds of napalm. Artillery fired 21,732 rounds. And a lot of this was in anticipation, you know, you could probably speak a lot better on this than I can, but you know, we're not just gonna send our troops in there in defended positions without bombing the living bejesus out of it. You know, you put some air support in, you put some artillery in, and then you send your ground troops. But the Vietnamese, from what I've read, knew that when they targeted one area, that's where they were gonna be. And part of their strategy was to dig in, let them come up, attack, spend it, kill as many as they can, and then escape one mile into Laos because they knew we wouldn't go there. And I think it shows, so if anybody looks up pictures, the movie, you can just watch the movie, you'll get a pretty good glimpse of it too. But if you look up pictures of what the battlefield looked like after, it looks like that much napalm was dropped on. I mean, it looks like no man's land in World War I. There's nothing standing. Everything's dead. Um, it's all muddy. It's all dirt. And I think it shows how no matter the amount of firepower that the enemy would was still there, they, they were dug in. They'd move into their trenches. And you might see all of those bombs dropping, the artillery falling, the mortars hitting. I think nothing's going to survive that. And, but how many times have we seen that throughout history? Nobody was supposed to be alive on the Normandy beaches, right? Um, when they go over the top at, at Verdun, all of the Germans should have been dead. The shelling was insane. And that's never quite how it shakes out. And this is just another example where it takes, it's that dirty, nasty, close range combat that uh, that's going to be what carries the day. Yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not a NVA apologist by any stretch of the imagination. I, I don't agree with a lot, you know, a lot of their policies then and now. And, uh, but you got, you know, like we spoke about before, you know, you got to respect them. We had like all that ordinance I just talked about, we laid that on them and they didn't have money. They didn't have backpacks. They a lot of them actually didn't even have shoes in the battle. And somehow, some way, you know, they, they don't have medevacs. They have loose stretchers, maybe. They have some guys in Laos giving some little bit of medicine. Somehow they held off everything the U.S. Army had to offer because there's a lot of hubris in that, you know, from the commanding generals to just keep on attacking, you know. We'll probably get to that later in the aftermath. Like, why did we do it? But to give everything we had and they held on for that long, I mean, that's for both sides. It's insane. It's insane to me. How long did the actual fight at Hamburger Hill take? Was it two days? No, it was 11, it's 10 days. But the actual? 10 days, 11 assaults. There you go, you're right. I was just seeing the first part. Back up, back up, back up. And that was something I wanted to bring up was this is one of those, they mentioned it, the platoon sergeant at some point, the the PL says, let me see a map and see where we are. And the platoon sergeant just dazing off in the distance. And he goes, we're in the A-Shaw and we're going back up that hill. I just (laughs) thought of like the sinking feeling of doing that once and knowing that that's what tomorrow brings you're doing it again i mean just if i just had to walk up that hill every day i'd be depressed but you add some mud some weight you're, you're off balance from your gear and then people are shooting at you the whole time oh. they, had, they were dug in these spider holes like and the, these spider holes were attached to these trenches and they'd, they'd 
they'd go in there, pop a couple shots, and then just escape. So then you, they'd fire at the spider hole. There'd be no one in there, and then be, they'd go in underground, basically. And we think about how, you know, you read stories of war, what, whatever war may be. You know how scary that must be to just go face someone shooting at you, you know, on both sides. It's just. Oof. And they're shooting down. That's one of the challenges. It's one of the reasons this is so deadly for the American troops. Is there's plenty of terrain that militaries have taken over time, but they're shooting straight down. Some of the areas on Hamburger Hill are challenging to move up when you're not crawling. Um, so imagine doing that. The the advantage the enemy has to kind of peer over the side and shoot down. It's it's an incredibly challenging position to assault. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I can't imagine having to do that and something they don't talk about is how hot it is it that was my Mm. first impression when i when i went to vietnam it was so hot i mean i'm talking 100 percent humidity i'm not exaggerating and that at that point in that part of vietnam vietnam has many different regions like i said and they're very different geographically and weather wise that area to be able to hump up with the backpack full gear fighting your brains out for days on end without you know proper food and water you know eating sea rats all day the exhaustion from the heat i don't think they reference that even today the whole country shuts down during for about two to three hours during the lunch hour it is it's too hot so it's a siesta throughout the entire country businesses are closed schools are closed offices are closed everything it is so hot so i don't understand plus the rain and all the other elements, and then added on the shooting and the bombing and the napalm. And, and they also talk about the friendly fire. I'm sure with all the artillery and, and bombs, and then they mentioned that, which I didn't get to research, is when the, the helicopter comes in and starts laying fire on them and killing their own. I mean, I, I'm sure that happened a decent amount. Um, not too much, but I'm sure it happened. And that's just how they could deal with all that is... Wish they got a little more credit. That's a challenging one. That when that friendly fire started happening, just you can, if you're in that situation. So I've been fortunate to not have been in a situation of anything anywhere near that uh, that terrifying and that that devastating in terms of friendly fire. But it's not like you flip a switch and it stops. Hmm. If it's artillery coming in, it, it's rarely one round. So when you start to recognize that it's friendly fire. Um, you can put that call over the radio. It might not be 45 seconds before. I mean, it, it could be up to 45 seconds, a minute, five minutes before that's relayed to the right people. If you think about it, you call over and say, we're receiving friendly fire. Who's shooting? We have no idea. We're on the receiving end. We didn't call it. And then you have to start figuring out what unit it's coming from. And then are they done shooting? And nobody's really, what if they miscalculated and think they shot somewhere else? And it's just it's a terrible situation to be in. There's not any quick way out of that. And and we're talking about, this isn't just like a one, like a volcano shaped mountains. This has ridgelines and fingers and they're going up and they're all trying to coordinate this. This is multi, uh, I think like three plus battalions assaulting this hill. Mm -hmm. And there's, I said this number before, 21,732 artillery shells rounds. That's 2000 per day. And you were FSO, correct? Yeah. Can you can you imagine putting that kind of, that kind of rounds downrange and then and the, the, the technology the radio communication supposedly at this battle 
the with the radios that had the PRCs, the pricks, mm -hmm. they couldn't even hear. You know, this isn't you know some headpiece that you know is computerized. They couldn't hear. They couldn't communicate. They were just throwing you know just the destruction and the. Oof. So we had one of the more uh, we had a relatively kinetic deployment. There were a lot of bombs, a lot of artillery being fired, and I don't know that if we add all of them up. There were 21,000 bombs, artillery rounds, and mortars fired the entire year. And they were being shot every day. Hmm. 21,000 is a lot, a lot, especially yeah. when it's concentrated on a hill like this. And the numbers are foggy uh, still, but there is an estimated around 800 North Vietnamese soldiers defending the area. Almost all of them were killed, but that gets into this weird part of Vietnam, which is, we don't actually know. Um, that's where the body count thing gets confusing. Um, Leon, when it comes to some of this stuff, when you see a battle like Hamburger Hill, have we been able to see how accurate some of these U.S. estimates are, or is it still kind of unknown? Uh, we just have to take, you know, what the, uh, I guess the officers on the ground reported back in their after action reports i guess that's the only way and then and then i guess the body counts that we registered whoever served there and processed through as far as the the nva i don't think we can get an accurate number they've released some of their records but everything's been exaggerated um sometimes way less and sometimes way more so i don't know if we'll ever get an accurate count but a lot a lot more of them died than the americans I can guarantee you that. I mean, we threw it, a, a it, lot at them. In general and here in this conflict, I mean, this was as dead this in this battle, as deadly as it was. And in the movie, it looks like every time you look up, somebody's dying. It, it, there were 72 Americans killed, which yeah, makes seven, for a pretty nasty fight. Yeah, 72. And that's, you know, a life is a life. And that's 72 that unfortunately died. But on the other side, I mean, that's 800. What is it? Seven, 800? They said 630 were counted dead. I would, I wouldn't be surprised if it was double that. You know, who who knows? It could be that number. It could be double, but that's a lot. And then something, um, a quote that has resonated with me. Um, it was from it, it was in Ken Burns' documentary. Did you did mm -hmm. you watch it? Yeah, it's been a little while, but yeah. So, an author and a poet from North Vietnam. His name is Bao Ning. B-A-O-N-I-N-H, Bao Ning. He has a quote that when I saw it in that documentary, it sat with me and I, I look at it somewhat often and I'll, I'll read it to you and then we can, I can, I would like to hear your reaction. He goes, who won and who lost is not a question. In war, no one wins or loses. There's only destruction. Only those who have never fought like to argue about who won and who lost. And that really hit hard with me because I was never in a fight. I, and I would sometimes say, Oh, who won the Vietnam war? And then that kind of put things in per, sort of perspective to me. Yeah. Talk about a hot topic. That's something people really like to debate strongly. Um, and I, that is, that's interesting. That's kind of the sentiment I have of, it feels like everybody lost in a sense. Um, you know, the, the people of South Vietnam, 
lived on a battlefield for almost 20 years. A lot of North Vietnamese civilians and soldiers died. A lot mm -hmm. of Americans died and families went without fathers, brothers, husbands. Um, I think you can, if you really narrow it in, you can get into the who met their objectives. And in that case, the U.S. did and North Vietnam did. Um, but I think we, when we do that, it's, I think where I get hung up on that, we're getting kind of big picture Vietnam, Yeah, is we, we tend to leave out South Vietnam as though it's just a piece of ground to be fought over. And they're a big part of that. They, they, I wouldn't, I think some people in South Vietnam would say they from that period didn't win, but there's others in South Vietnam that would say they didn't win. Um, that's confusing. No, you're, you're dead on. You're dead on. So yeah, that's a, that's a whole big topic we could probably go on for a while about. So. Well, let's get up to the, there's something I want to hit on that that's, that's not in the movie. So I, let's, let's, I want to get up towards the, the top of the hill and it's this weird like sense of accomplishment in their eyes, kind of. It's like a mix of accomplished and like dead inside was the look. Um, and if you know something about this battle, I think it hits home a little more. They did it, they got to the top of the hill, they cleared it, and a couple days later, they leave and walk away. They don't occupy it. They don't build a forward operating base there or a fire base or anything. They leave. The Americans are ordered to leave. And you were getting at it a little bit earlier about how public sentiment started to shift the whole idea of, wait a minute, what? It's, it, it defies common sense to take a military objective at that cost got to be a challenge to think of the guys that died there and you just feel like you give it right back yeah that's yeah i think you nailed it that's uh it's a really tough one the same thing happened in kaysan or kaysang uh they fought for eight months to get seven however long it was a lot more americans died a lot of vietnamese died and then they just abandoned the base right after it was over and it was you know but you, you mentioned it before, you know, what are our objectives? Did we go in with clear objectives or do we kind of fray from, fray from that? And I guess Afghanistan has a lot of parallels too. You know, what were our objectives? Did we finish that? Did we not? It's kind of a hot topic right now. I don't know if we should get into that, but it's, uh, and the, the general, the major general Zeiss, I think his name is something along those lines. He said, yeah, I obtained my objective. There was enemies on that hill. We went in there. We killed them. We took it, and I'd be willing to do it all again. So, yeah, Zeiss. This yeah. was not a war of hills. The hill had no military value whatsoever. We found the enemy, and that's where we fought him. Yeah. So, but I guess as a soldier, you know, black and white soldier, there's the enemy. You go kill him. You win. Game over. But politically, you know, this is like military philosophy and art of war mentions this Clausewitz mentions this it's you know political there's a whole political aspect to it so and i think that's where it gets really confusing in this conflict is by all i shouldn't say all because the terrain is a big part of that but if you lose 72 troops and kill 630 generally speaking that's considered success a victory um 
more enemy were removed from the battlefield than friendlies. Mission accomplished. And that happened over and over in Vietnam. There were very few battles at scale, at least. I don't know that there were any large battles, battalion size and larger, where more Americans died than Vietnamese. Say, hey. I doubt it. Yeah, there might be a rare exception, but I would consider this, uh, like I said, we were talking about victories, you know, who wins and who loses, everyone dies, you know, but I think politically it was a fear victory for the North, you know, they turned the sentiment against politically against, uh, against the war in America. So they might've lost, you know, more there, but long-term they gained their objective. So, but like I said, I don't, I don't know if there's a winner or a loser. Is this a battle that is documented? I think that's the right way to put it. So in the United States, we've got, if you go through the Vietnam War, Hamburger Hill is one of, you know, the ones you'll talk about if you're hitting on the big events. Is it like that in Vietnam? It's tough to tell because for one, the government there does not, their, their history textbook is a pamphlet. It's just, you know, it's like 30 pages on a soft, it's like a magazine. They don't talk about this. Everything, it's still a communist country. So everything's, you know, production numbers. They don't talk about the whys or the ifs. It's, there was a battle, this many people here, this, this was the commander, this is the outcome, next one. So they don't really go into it very much. And I think the youth is not that interested in military history over there. I could be completely wrong on that, but I didn't get that sense. Uh, they kind of move on, you know, that's, they move forward in their history. You know, that was the past, let's move forward. That's kind of a general mindset in Vietnam. But I do know that over there, there is, I've been to a number of battles sites in Vietnam and usually there's a, some markers and a small museum. I don't know if this one has a museum. It might have like a little shed or not a shed, but like a small building with some, some pictures and a couple explanations on what happened. But it's certainly not, they don't have, you know, historic trust, and battlefield trust and park service, giving battle tours. I think uh, it's, it's different, different mindset over there. They might have a plaque or something saying like here, this is where the battle happened, but uh, they don't glorify it like we do. I think they're, they're kind of trying to move on from the death and destruction of what happened in the uh, late sixties and the early seventies. It's interesting. I, I can understand that. I, I find myself more in the camp of not necessarily wanting to glorify some of these things, but remember, um, but I can completely understand the other side of it, of move past and move on. Yeah. I don't know if they, the, the government puts such importance on, on that. So I don't, I don't know. The, the communist government's very secretive. Uh, they're very rigid, corrupt. Uh, they've got a, and I think in general, the people of Vietnam have a distrust for their government. Not all, some people buy into it, but they kind of just, they go with it because life is better now than it was in the 60s, the 70s, and certainly the 80s. Uh, we're kind of going off topic, but in 86, they were extremely poor. The Soviet Union was collapsing and they had no 
money, no more funding. They had just fought wars for the past, you know, hundred years. They didn't have anything. The U.S. had economic sanctions on them. So in '86 they transformed their economy, and then in '95 Clinton opened up um, the sanctions on them. And so life was pretty rough after the war. So they didn't, they didn't really have money for trust and battle. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a survival aspect. You know, just getting by, rebuilding a country that's been war-torn and seriously war-torn for many generations. Good point. Yeah. Well, we're probably getting towards a wrap-up point here, Leon. Anything we didn't hit on you wanted to wanted to get out there? <sighs> um, I mean, there's plenty of stuff to talk about. I could probably talk about. We'll have to save this for another another podcast. Yeah. But, uh, sum up your sum up all of your thoughts on the Vietnam War in the next thirty seconds. Well, uh, we'll, come, we'll come back. We'll have to do another uh, another one on maybe a different time yeah, period. Yeah, just I. It's, I think at the uh, end of the movie they uh, they quote. There's a quote saying, you know, don't forget the guys who served. And I think the movie does a great job of saying, you know, like, hey, there's a lot of people against the war. But these guys gave everything. When it wasn't popular, when people came home, they were throwing piss on them and spitting at them. They were doing what they were told to do. They were soldiers. And I think we got to respect them for that. People, people like me who don't fight in wars can't understand what a soldier goes through when they're in war. And then we expect them to come home and be the same. So I would just say without summing it up, I know I didn't really answer your question, but let's, uh, let's, uh, let's just give respect to these guys who are there and went through what they did on both sides. I like it, man. Well, like every time we talk, Leon, I learned a lot. So thank you very much for taking the time tonight, man. Well, thank you for having me. Let's hopefully do something like this in the future. I like it. Take care, buddy. All right. Thanks. Hey, thanks for listening to war stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.